0: Visit Bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show. New missions to find life on Mars.
2: We don't know what's going to be on this. Some people hope that there might be signs of life on these samples from Mars, perhaps even fossilized life.
1: And the importance of understanding computers. The machines out
3: there are winning because they're not understood very well. I think if humans understood them better, they might try to tame them more.
1: First up, for millennia, human beings have looked to the stars and wondered, how we got here? How did the planets come to revolve around the Sun? In 1605, a German astronomer, Johannes Kepler, likened the machinery of the heavens to clockwork. But this implies that the planets were always in perfectly stable orbits. Since the 1990s, new models have cast doubt on the idea that the solar system has always looked the way it does today. Tom Stanage is the deputy editor of The Economist. Hello, Tom. Hello, Ken. Tom, one of the big early theories about the solar system is the nebular hypothesis
0: from the 18th century. How did that come about? The assumption was that there was basically a big kind of ball of gas that started to collapse gravitationally and then you get the sun in the middle and a big swirling disk of of stuff around it and gradually the planets formed out of that disk. And that all sounded quite straightforward and sort of suggested that the solar system formed in pretty much the structure that it has now. And what's interesting is that the research that's been done in the past couple of decades means we're actually able to reconstruct the early history of the solar system. And it turned out to be much more dynamic and much more violent than we thought it was. So when did people start to really seriously question this? Well, it was always a bit of a mystery about how Uranus and Neptune got to be where they are, because it doesn't look like there would have been enough material in the disk called the protoplanetary disk around the Sun for them to have formed where they are. And then when we started to discover planets around other stars starting in the 1990s, the planetary systems didn't look anything like our own. There were very often really, really large planets like Jupiter or bigger than Jupiter, very close to their stars, where they can't possibly have formed because you can only form a gas giant like that quite far from a star where you get gases condensing and and freezing and liquid uh, freezing. So it's obvious that those so-called hot Jupiters orbiting very close to those stars must have somehow moved to get there. And in the 1980s, a couple of researchers called Julio Fernandez and Wing Ip had done a bit of theoretical modelling. And what they were considering was how, when you've got big planets going round a star and you've got lots of sort of leftover bits, which are called planetesimals, so these are the sort of debris that you get left over from planet formation. And they showed, quite interestingly, that the way that the planets throw the planetesimals around would have caused the outer three giants, so Saturn, Uranus and Neptune to move further away from the Sun and would have caused Jupiter to move closer to the Sun. So there was a mechanism for migration. How can we know this? Well, an important clue lay in the unusual orbit of Pluto, this you know dwarf planet, as we now call it, beyond the orbit of Neptune. And a planetary scientist called Renu Malhotra, she'd read this earlier paper on migration of giant planets, and she thought, maybe that explains it. You know, Maybe Neptune put it there.
4: I had been thinking about the peculiarities of Pluto, Pluto was really peculiar in uh, several ways, it's much smaller than the other outer planets and uh, most uh, intriguingly or most vexingly its orbit is uh, really weird, it's tilted and its orbit is also very elliptical and uh, what I did was uh, I figured that we could understand Pluto's peculiarities if we allowed that the giant planets had not formed in the orbits that we find them today. And specifically, if Neptune had formed closer to the sun and had migrated out, Pluto, had it formed in a normal orbit initially, would have gotten picked up in this orbital resonance with uh, Neptune and that would have made its orbit more elliptical and tilted over time as Neptune kept migrating out and Pluto kept migrating with Neptune in this orbital resonance that it got picked up in. So my work had to do with trying to understand Pluto's orbit, orbital properties and hypothesizing that if Neptune's orbit had expanded, if Neptune had spiraled outward, we could understand the peculiarities of uh, Pluto. Pluto would then be a symptom of the migration of uh, Neptune.
0: And if this was true, then there ought to be other bodies in similar orbits to Pluto. So Dr Malhotra made a prediction, which is I bet there are more of them. And sure enough, in the 1990s, a bunch more of these so-called trans-Neptunian objects were found, just the way she expected them to be. So people thought, okay, this all adds up now. We've got an explanation for how planets can migrate. And this was just at the point when an explanation for moving planets was needed because astronomers were starting to find these hot Jupiters, giant planets, orbiting other stars. And they'd somehow migrated inwards all the way up to the star. And uh, so this suddenly meant that we had a mechanism for explaining how they would got there.
1: So we understand the solar system. Case closed, nothing else to learn. Or is there anything new?
0: Well, so what this meant was that people started modelling the early solar system and saying, well, let's imagine we've got some planets, but we've still got a whole load of planetesimals lying around. Let's see what happens to the behaviour of the planets. And the interesting thing, and this was a computer model that was created in the early 2000s called the Nice model. And what they found was that um, if you have this kind of early solar system set up, you've got your giant planets, you've got your planetesimals. Yes, they do start to move, but they actually, the giant planets interact with each other in quite violent ways. And one of the scientists who was working on this was Alessandro Morbidelli. In
5: 2005, we reached the basis of a model that is now universally known as the Nice model because it was developed here in Nice, that shows that the current structure in the solar system is the result of a dynamical phase of instability that the planetary system underwent after the disappearance of gas in the surrounding of the Sun. And during this instability, the planetary orbits separated from each other, acquired the small eccentricities and inclinations that we see today, and the remnant small bodies that were in between the orbits of the planets got severely kicked, and most of them have been ejected from the solar system into the galactic space, and the bodies that survive today have the orbits that we see, inclined, eccentric, and so on and so forth.
0: But this came in for some criticism. It did. There were quite a lot of arbitrary assumptions. So this prompted people to go and do another version of the model. So it's actually evolved quite a lot over the years.
5: In second generation of the Nice model that we started to develop since 2007, we removed the arbitrarily choice of the initial condition of the orbits of the giant planets and instead adopted the orbits that the simulations we are giving to us.
0: So let me ask, Tom, why does our solar system look so different than others? Well, this potentially gives us an explanation, which is, you know, if giant planets interact with planetesimals and migrate towards their stars, that would explain why we see so many hot Jupiters. But it turns out you can also model the early solar system and you can figure out what happened early on in our solar system and why Jupiter didn't end up going all the way into, you know, inside the orbit of where Mercury is now. And what they concluded was that Jupiter moved in and then moved out again, something called the Grand Tack.
5: In 2011, we proposed the idea that as the giant planets were growing and migrating in the disk of gas, there has been a specific gravitational interaction between Jupiter and Saturn which may have uh, reversed the migration of Jupiter. So first, Jupiter was migrating towards the star. And then when Saturn formed, it um, reached a resonance with with Jupiter. Uh, So Jupiter was doing three revolutions around the Sun, while Saturn was doing two. And in that configuration, it has been shown that migration reverses. And Jupiter and Saturn, instead of continuing to migrate towards the Sun, reverse migration and migrate away from the Sun.
0: So what does all this mean for us on Earth? Well, the terrestrial planets, the rocky planets, formed later than the gas giant planets. So after all this ballet had sort of finished, whether it's the Grand tack to start with and then the sort of Nice model stuff, one of the consequences of the Grand tack is that had Jupiter not been stopped, had it not tacked, it might either have ended up going into the Sun or it might have ended up as a hot Jupiter. In the process it would have got rid of, it would have cleared out all of the material that subsequently formed the Earth. So we know there isn't a hot Jupiter and if there was one we wouldn't be here to talk about it. The other consequence of all of this is it seems to explain why Mars is much smaller than the Earth. So we've got these uh, in a lot of simulations you, you get terrestrial planets and Venus, Mars and Earth are kind of pretty much the same size and so it's kind of of weird that Mars is as small as it is when you've done thousands of these simulations and it doesn't, again, quite tally with what we see. And the grand tack explains that too because Jupiter comes in and it's sort of sweeping up and chucking out all this debris and then Saturn pulls it back and that explains why there's less material to form Mars. And because Mars is smaller, it hasn't been able to retain an atmosphere. It hasn't got a strong enough gravitational field to retain its atmosphere. So if Jupiter had tacked a little bit sooner, we might have ended up with a bigger Mars and it might actually have been a better place for for life to form than it is now obviously you know we don't know if there was ever life or there is life there now so all of these things turn out to be related to the early dynamics of these giant planets and the just tiny variations in the way that uh, things were set up determined whether or not there was a an earth for us to live on and, and us to be here to figure all this out billions of years later
1: that's great tom thank you very much thank you Next up, as Tom Standage pointed out, there is still a lot that researchers don't know about Mars. But that's something that some American and European scientists want to change. A new mission hopes to collect samples from the surface of the red planet and bring them back to the surface of the blue and green planet, Earth. It's a hugely complex task that will take five different machines a decade to achieve. Alok Jaws, the economist, science and technology correspondent, he joins me now to talk about it. Hello, Alok. Hi, Ken. Alok, let's start with this. How do scientists collect samples on other planets?
2: So Mars has currently got a few rovers sort of crawling around, taking samples, ingesting them, doing very basic chemistry to understand whether there's the signatures of things that might be life, looking for all sorts of ideas about the history of the planet, um, you know, things like methane, things like oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that's how we do it right now. They do the experiments over there and then send the information back just via satellite. So they send the
1: information back by satellite, but not the samples.
2: Correct, because getting anything to Mars is very, very difficult. Half of the missions fail. Now, you can do limited amounts of chemistry, limited amounts of scanning when you're actually there. But, you know, on Earth, we have much better labs. We've got X-ray scanners. We've got MRI scanners. We've got technologies that haven't even been invented yet that we could perhaps be using one day. But we don't have the samples. And so what we need to do is bring the rocks here to actually do all of that sophisticated chemistry. Easy peasy. Well, you think so. And in fact, there are 200 Mars rocks, 200 or so Mars rocks already here, meteorites. Um, But they're not very useful for this purpose uh, that NASA and ESA want, which is... All of their missions in the past 30 years have been doing one goal. Is there life on Mars? That's the question they're trying to answer. For the last 30 years, they've been trying to answer that question. And bit by bit, they're sort of stepping through all of that.
1: Now, why can't NASA or ESA, the European Space Agency, come up with that answer themselves already?
2: It's very complicated to understand from the very simple chemistry experiments and the very simple scanners on the Mars rovers. Really complicated questions about where the various chemicals that you'll see on Mars, where they're coming from, and to construct histories and geologies. So tell me how you take a sample from the planet Mars
1: and bring it to Earth.
2: So this is one of the most complicated space uh, missions ever constructed. Some would say almost as complicated as the Apollo moon landings. So this involves um, five machines and almost a decade. It'll start next year in July 2021 when the Mars 2020 rover takes off from the States and sets its way off to Mars. That'll land about six months later, and it'll land up in a place called Jezero Crater. Now, this is a very interesting place on Mars because it used to contain a lake three billion years ago. And so what this rover will do, Mars 2020, which, by the way, still has to be named, uh, Mars 2020 rover will go around uh, looking at samples and doing experiments and understanding what the rocks are like and what the clay minerals contain and so on. This tells scientists on Earth whether there was water there, uh, what kind of water it was, you know, what kinds of other biosignatures there might be. But then if it finds something really interesting, what it'll do is to take that sample and put it into a titanium test tube, seal it up, and then drop the test tube on the ground. Now, all of these things will be photographed from space by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is already there, uh, sort of circling the planet. And there'll be high-resolution photographs taken so that you can identify where these test tubes are, are dropped. So they have the test tubes. What then? So once you've got the test tubes on the ground, you need to collect them. So about 2028, there'll be another mission launched, which will contain a rover built by ESA, a very small rover this time, whose entire purpose on Mars will be to go and pick up these test tubes. So it has to find all the test tubes. It'll have some sort of uh, autonomous capability to spot these test tubes, pick them up, put them into a test tube rack, essentially, collect them all, bring them back to a rocket that will also come with it on the same mission that will be sitting on the surface of Mars at this point. Insert them into the rocket and then the rocket takes off into space. Okay, that's step two or step three? I think step three uh, because you had Mars 2020, then the Fetch rover, and now it's up in space.
1: Okay, up in space. What happens then?
2: So then when the Mars ascent vehicle uh, gets up into uh, Mars orbit, it will meet a European orbiter called the Earth Return Orbiter. Uh, It's built by ESA. That's That's what it says on the tip. That's what it'll be saying. All these things need proper names, don't they? But at the moment, it's all very... It's all very uh, literal. This is an ESA spacecraft that will meet the Mars ascent vehicle in orbit. And what happens is the Mars ascent vehicle chucks out the test tube rack, which is about the size of a basketball. And then the Earth return vehicle has to intercept this, grab hold of it and ingest it and then take it back to Earth. So then the Earth return orbiter takes a very gentle cruise back to Earth. It'll probably take three or so years. And then it gets into Earth orbit. And at that point, it takes this basketball-sized test tube rack chucks it into the atmosphere of the Earth. And the, the thing then just has to go through the atmosphere of the Earth, uh, survive re-entry, and it lands in Utah. So now
1: that it's in Utah... What then? That step six must be
2: when researchers well, look at it. The next step is to collect it, obviously, find it. It's got to survive a hard landing. There's no parachutes or anything. It's got to survive a hard landing. And then the test tube rack will be picked up and taken to a, a, a sort of biosafety level four um, containment unit because we don't know what's going to be on this. Uh, the, 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 the hope is, some people hope, that there might be signs of life on these samples from Mars, uh, perhaps even fossilized life. But and level four is the highest level. Level four is the highest. Um, and so it could be poisonous. Uh, who knows what's on it? It's just for pure safety's sake. It will then be analysed to make sure that it's safe and then it will be distributed for analysis. Before I let you go, you had mentioned that many Mars missions failed. Is this one going to suffer the same fate? Well, I mean, you've got to think it's one of the most optimistic people who would think that it's going to go without a hitch because landing anything on Mars is really, really, really hard. Often things will crash. And in this mission, like I said, there's there's multiple junctures where different machines have to interact with each other autonomously, intercept each other in the vastness of space and then get back all robotically. The planning has happened, and so the technical uh, details are all set. Um, The European Space Agency has allocated something like 450 million euro, about $500 million, to the early stages of it already. And NASA will find out in February uh, whether it gets the money for it. The whole thing should cost about $7 billion, and it's ready to go. They just need political approval.
1: It's a lot of money for a couple of rocks.
2: I mean, they're the most valuable rocks in the world. They will be when they come back. If they come back. If they come back. Have faith, Ken.
1: <laughs> Thanks a lot, Alec. You're very welcome, Ken. And you can read a piece in the upcoming edition of The Economist, where you can also find Tom's piece on planetary migration. And remember, you can take out a subscription too. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12.
5: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: And finally, how important is it for humans to understand their machines? It's a question that the American designer and technologist John Maida has been thinking about for decades in his books, in his classes, and in his work. It began with him as a professor at MIT in digital design, later as the president of the Rhode Island School of Design. Today, he is the chief experience officer at Publicis Sapient, a digital strategy and consulting company. John has written a new book titled How to Speak Machine, Laws of Design for a Digital Age. In it, he suggests a simple set of rules that govern today's computers and those of the machines of the future. I started by asking him what it's like to be a chief experience officer. My day looks like
3: working with a lot of established companies and supporting their digital transformation. It used to be just about technology, but now it's about how does it feel? What's it design?
1: Does that say something about people and how we've changed or the technology and how it's changed? I think it says both
3: things because now technology is ubiquitous. And number two, we seem to be okay with technology around us all over the place. Well, the technologies we use today, we actually sort of see, but the technologies of tomorrow, we won't. Well, the reality is the technologies that we see, we're only seeing a tiny fraction of what it's actually doing because we're looking at – it's like looking at someone's fingernail, but actually the giant body is invisible. Uh, That's why putting the spotlight on computation or the world of Babbage or the world of computer science I think is so important right now because it's invisible.
1: And is that why you believe it's so important that we understand how machines speak?
3: Yes, because otherwise we'll just be afraid of it. And as you can see today in the political uh, atmosphere, it's like um, being afraid of something is the great way to secure power. And if computation is invisible, uh, people will protect us from it. I don't think that's a good strategy.
1: Well, a lot of people didn't understand how math worked, but people were happy walking into a cathedral.
3: Absolutely, because you're walking into a building and the building was built and you're done. But when you build software that's available running 24/ 7 in the cloud and it's constantly monitoring and you're engaging with it, you're going to think, "Well, is it OK for the thing to sort of monitor me so much?" How is it doing that?
1: Get curious.: You're treating the computer as a living being because it is recursive, because it learns over time, etc, with the machine learning algorithm between the machine and man, who is winning?
3: I think that the machines out there are winning because they're not understood very well. I think if humans understood them better, they might try to tame them more. How much can we
1: expect the
3: layperson to understand? I think right now we don't expect much. And I think that's part of the problem. And that's why I wanted to explain what you can see if you can write software at a certain level of fluency. And once you can grasp the potential, you can't help but wonder, could we use it differently? Can we ask to actually have ourselves control it, than have it control us?
4: Now,
1: one of your solutions is that people should be more audacious. What do you mean by that?
3: We have to be courageous to understand computers. And the only way to be courageous is to understand the pros and cons of them and the theory behind them.
1: Once we understand them, we can take them on. Okay, so how would the technology world be different if designers were at the center of it rather than, say, the coders who are? How would Twitter be different? What would Facebook look like? I think if the right kind of designers
3: were involved, we would ask questions about basic things, like think about how Facebook was invented with the avatar and name on it. And Facebook was designed to be a way to basically date, you know, uh, be connected, literally. That culture assumes, uh, I want to see a picture of a, a man or a woman or a name, whatever. So it's, it's, it's implicitly gendered. And therefore, the entire way we build systems have this avatar and name. It makes it very hard for many women to be online because essentially they're getting hit on. And so it's been designed the wrong way from the beginning. If designers who ask questions about bias had rethought the work being done alongside the engineers to be more inclusive, I'm not sure the world might be maybe a better place, a more
1: inclusive place. That's true. That's possible. The other possibility is a little bit darker. Sometimes the UX people and the UI people, they're thinking about dark patterns and coaxing people into clicking more and staying longer, sometimes against their interests.
3: Right. Well, that's because um, a lot of the business thinking around UX came from the Las Vegas slot machine theories. There's a great book called Addiction by Design written by a social scientist who lived in Las Vegas for three years to point out the power of the near miss. And the near miss is what drives you to be engaged in something. And so I look at that as a fall to the fact that barring those patterns from slot machines, hey, look out. turns out that you're addicted because old addictive methods are being used. Um, However, I think that designers today in the technology industry, also technology companies themselves, are asking questions around, was that okay to lay down? And can we perhaps turn the ship? Do designers have a moral responsibility? Should they take some sort of Hippocratic oath? I think absolutely. And I think engineers too. I think product managers as well. I think tech companies will have to get there. Otherwise, the automated uh, biases
1: are just not good products. How would you redesign, say, checks and balances or capitalism or meritocracy? These big concepts that seem to be really under fire these days. I would actually lean towards computation
3: again because there's so many folks who understand how law is like the programming language of society and code is a kind of programming language. And are there ways to leverage that knowledge in the computational space to help us address some complex laws that can't be written as text, as code? Um,
1: That's a technocrat in me. Um, That could help a lot. John, I'm looking at your latest book right now, How to Speak Machine, Laws of Design for Digital Age. And we would like you to sign it for one lucky listener. I'm
3: happy to sign it for a Babbage listener out there.
1: Thank you very much. And as you sign it, we're going to decide what the question is that the listener has to respond to. Oh, my. Exactly. So that they can actually win it. What a beautiful signature. Great. And so the question, I think, is going to be this. What is the one thing in society that should be redesigned? Send your answer and an explanation to radio at economist.com, and we will pick our favorite, and one lucky person will have a chance to win this signed book. John, it's been great to chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. My gosh. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.